Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi there, and welcome to Basic Folk. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Very happy that you have discovered us, that you've stumbled upon us, because today we are in for a real treat. We get to talk to the legend herself, Susan Warner, on Basic Folk. Now, this is one of the first interviews I recorded in quarantine, so there are some references to being inside of your house at all times. But we do talk about Susan being born and raised on her family's 140-acre farm in Iowa, where her and her siblings helped out on the farm growing up. At a young age, she noticed the divide between kids who lived in town and the farm kids. One of the differences was that the town kids wore the same clothes all day instead of changing into work clothes after school to get to work on the farm. Um, we talk about this realization as well as music growing up in the house and her family's sense of humor, which is important. There's a great explanation of different types of agriculture for any of my Aggie fans out there. Uh, there's also a conversation of faith from an agnostic's perspective. Susan is a versatile musician who likes to explore different sounds and themes on her albums. Uh, case in point, when she released her 2017 EP that surrounds the sound of Cuba that actually laid the foundation for her newest album, 2019's NOLA. Hope you enjoy this engaging and wildly fun interview with the one and only Susan Warner. We're going to listen to a clip of a song from her new album, the song Get You From Below. Let's take a listen and then we'll hear our conversation with Susan Warner on Basic Book. Yeah, I was born out on the bayou Out where the people say the logs got eyes Yeah, I was born out on the bayou Out where the people say the logs got eyes Yes, I was born out on the bayou Out where the people say the logs got eyes that blinks an alligator in disguise Yeah, we got stuff, stuff down here Stuff down here All right, Susan, thank you for talking to me today. Um, let's just, like, launch right into your entire history, which is, like, so incredibly fascinating. When I interview an artist such as yourself who has such an interesting background and has has such a, a discography i i kind of like don't know where to focus so you were born and raised on your family's 140 acre farm in iowa where you had hogs dairy corn soybeans and soybeans and chickens can you set the scene for what your upbringing was like i think you're missing two rabbits and a horse 
What kind of rabbits? <laughs> uh, there, I think they were like there was some. They were Belgian or something. They had some special, you know, some special funny name. Um, were they big? Yeah, they were big and fluffy. They were pets, you know. They weren't. They weren't meat rabbits. Though I did, I did know people who grew meat rabbits. Um, that's tough. T- that's tough, especially for the rabbits. You know, <laughs> I did uh, grow up on a working farm and um, about an hour west of Dubuque. And my parents still live an hour west of Dubuque, and they still own the land. And um, I think for those of us that grew up uh, on farms, two things go on. We, some of us are a little restless thinking, oh, we're missing out on everything everywhere else in the world. Um, but then there comes a point where you kind of appreciate the good fortune of growing up with plenty of space. And growing up on a farm... Uh, where pretty much everybody had a quarter mile to themselves. It was like having your own state park. Uh, you had you know, to ride up and down the gravel roads with so little traffic. And I mean, one of my memories from childhood is being on the bicycle and chasing a cloud shadow from the hill on the south, about a quarter mile south of the farm, to the hill to the north, about a quarter mile north of the farm. And taking our bicycles, me and my brother and my sister, going up to the top of the hill in the south, watching a cloud come from the south in the summer, the breeze from the south, seeing the cloud shadow come up the road from the south, and then trying to ride and stay in the cloud shadow as the cloud moved north with the breeze. I think that sense of space and playing with the elements um, remains really... uh, I just really cherish that kind of memory and and having that kind of landscape as a as a friend and a companion. And for my cousins who are raising their kids that way, and uh, so many of my friends uh, out in Iowa and Nebraska, where there's enough space, it's really a gift. And mm. um, and so I finally allowed it to show up in my songwriting. And we'll talk more about that, I guess, when we get to that project. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that you all had farm chores. You had, was it five or six siblings? Yeah, six of us, um, and yes. Surrounded by farms in the area. I want to know about, like, how comfortable you are with being dirty, because I imagine when you were a kid, being dirty was just a part of everyday life, and maybe how that translates into your adult life. I don't know if I don't know if I'd use the word dirty. I mean, it was sort of an outdoor way of life, right? And but I did notice. I remember when I was like in third grade, um, one of the girls in my class had a birthday party, and I remember we went to her house after school, and they all kept the same clothes on after school. City kids kept the same clothes on, whereas we went home and we would change clothes because your town clothes, your school clothes were nice. That was big to me, like like recognizing, oh, not everybody lives like this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the word dirty came up, but there was this word of like, oh, right. They don't have to do things outside. They don't have to do chores. And this class realization, right, that Mm -hmm. happens to every kid at a certain point. Oh, some people live differently. Um, But yeah, I did have chores. And I think the lowest was picking up rocks. Like we would walk through the field and pick up rocks so my dad's plow blade didn't break on the rocks. And when you're picking up rocks, I just have to say, you just feel like, you know, you're just not so special. You know, (laughs) 
you know? <laughs> like somehow everyone's overqualified for this particular job. Um, and I think um, what that's one thing that growing up on a working farm gives you is a sense of almost anything is easier than this. Almost anything is easier than this. So people say, oh, you know, you're busy, you work a lot. I'm like, I'm happy to work a lot. I mean, this is what they call, being a musician is what they call indoor work with good lighting. You know, I saw my parents work hard. I saw them milk twice a day. I saw all of this and did this. And uh, my life is a piece of cake compared to that. So let's talk about music and the family. Your family was quite musical. So I'm wondering how everybody came to appreciate music and how that practice looked like in your house. Hey, thanks for asking about that. I feel really fortunate that um, my parents did value music. You know, there were plenty of farm families who felt like that would be an indulgence. Um, but my mother sings like a bird. She still does. And the fact they encouraged their kids to learn instruments and um, we, and we all would harmonize together in the car. When country music historians talk about blood harmony between the Carter family and the Lewin brothers and such, my family still has that blood harmony. We sing together at the holidays and can harmonize uh, spontaneously. Um, I thought all families did that when I was little. I didn't know any different until I was about five or six or seven and realized, oh, other families don't do this. Um, it's one of the reasons I feel such affection for country music because there is this sense in country music that music is something you do to entertain yourself in the middle of nowhere and that it brings people together who maybe live far apart, um, and that there's a family affection component to it. Um, so those are really treasured memories of mine as everybody in the Pontiac Bonneville uh, with rear-wheel drive going through the snow to my grandparents' farm, and uh, everybody singing. Um, I think that's what you asked me, yeah? Yes, yes, and I'm wondering how, how that particular... Um, experience maybe affects you as a musician today? Yeah, I still see music as a very social thing, meaning let's let, let it bring us together. Um, I like to sing with the audience. I invite the audience to sing. You know, when I started out being a singer-songwriter, I thought this was kind of cheesy, the whole Pete Seeger thing. You know, what is this? Uh, and now I, I can't get enough of it. Um... I guess I've come to realize, and, um, uh, and it took me a while, but I've come to realize that when we sing together, we agree. When we laugh together, we agree. And that agreement is one of the most wonderful things, one of the wonder, most wonderful feelings we can have. Hmm. Um, I don't know if maybe politics changed or how we work changed, that we become more isolated, but agreement is a rare and wonderful thing. And if singing and music and laughing can do that wow that's a mm. superpower it's really a superpower and and we just can't get enough of it well speaking of laughing your family is also very funny i read it's part of it's part of your identity to be a funny family um how do you approach humor and like you, did it come to you naturally do you feel did you feel encouraged to be funny in um for a lot of us, I think our first audiences were our parents. If one of your parents thought you were charming, right? If one of your parents really just delighted in you, 
you might find yourself finding ways to delight them and entertaining them, uh, whether that's singing or telling jokes. My father's quite a joke teller and quite a storyteller. And I had a brother who passed away a few years ago. He was a stand-up comic and, oh, he was so gifted, he was so funny, and had timing and was able to stand in front of people uh, just fearlessly. Um, and I learned a lot from him. He was an older brother. Uh, but another component to all of this, I forgot to mention this, was we learned how to play music in our house um, because the nuns were playing guitars in the Catholic Church in the late 60s and 70s. Sister Marie Claire taught guitar lessons in my elementary school. She taught my older brother, and I was five years old, and he brought this guitar home, and I thought this was the most fabulous thing I'd ever seen. And he taught me three chords, and I learned those three chords when I was five years old, and that was it. That's all I wanted to do, was play this big thing that made this fabulous noise. Uh, so I will sometimes say that I owe my entire career to Pope John the Twenty Third, because he said nuns could go ahead and be groovy and play guitar, and I think that had an effect on a lot of us. I think a lot of the folk music tradition comes from people playing guitar in the Catholic Church. It was okay to do that. That was a revolution, uh, and a revolution for millions of Americans. Wow, I did not know that. I was not aware of that history. I, I do. I mean, think maybe this is all before, you know, before your, before your time, Cindy, um, <laughs> since I'm 150 years older than you. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, the, the Flying Nun, right, was a TV show with like Sally Field and she was singing. And then think of Maria Von Trapp and The Sound right. of Music, right? She was a guitar playing nun. Uh, and then Jesus Christ Superstar, that was um, from like mm. 1973, right? There was this blending of religion and music in this new kind of hippie way. Uh, and these were the years of the motorcycle priest too. We had one of those and they were considered like hippies, hippies in the church. We used to call them Father What a Waste because, um, because many of them were very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> so they were Father What a Waste. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I'm interested about, like, you did get a degree in opera. Singing, yeah. Right? And yeah. you got two degrees in opera singing. Yeah. So what um, made you want to want to pursue opera? It was just a way to, it was a way to get, um, to get to go to school, right? I didn't have other useful talents like, you know, playing basketball or anything, you know, amazing. But I could sing and you could get scholarships to do it. So I did that, and it paid for everything else. I feel really lucky about that. That's great. Um, and I also read uh, this really interesting quote where you said, I did some auditions after I got out of school, and I wasn't loud enough. I wasn't loud enough. What do you mean by that, and how did you feel about that realization? Well, it's, it's like it's like beware, here comes a sports analogy, but it's a little like having a 75 mile an hour softball or, or, or baseball pitch, right? Like you're just not gonna, you're never gonna make it in the pros. Um, opera is about volume, making lots of noise. And I just wasn't loud enough. I wasn't in a way brave enough. I was more of an introvert. 
and have turned out to be a writer more than I thought I would be. Um, opera is acting and acting big, larger than mm. life. And for those of us that do have an introverted component and maybe are writers, it's, it's just not, it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to be that much larger than life. So did you know the, the entire time that you wouldn't do opera professionally? I, I thought I was going to be able to do it. And then I took auditions and couldn't. And then I was, I had a period of, you know, serious bum out. Like, what have I done? And, and then I picked up my guitar. And one key moment was I picked up my guitar again after going to see Nancy Griffith at the Chestnut Cabaret in West Philly in like 1993, 1991 maybe. And here was this woman from Texas who was singing songs that she had written about people she knew. And this was really connecting with the audience. I mean, it's crazy to think that I was so disconnected from pop culture that I didn't understand this. But when you go into the conservatory or University of Music world, it's like going into a bubble. And coming back out and seeing people write songs that connect with people, I thought, oh, I can do this. I can do this. How did being a young gay performer affect your career? I don't know if you talk about this at all. Um, and have you seen that evolve over the years? You know, that's an interesting question because um, I don't think I thought of myself as gay um, and really didn't understand myself until I heard the word bisexual. And I'm like, oh, oh, now I get it. You know, some of us have, as Joni Mitchell wrote, looked at love from both sides now. So once you could own all sides of yourself, then this all made sense. Do you know? So mm -hmm. I feel like um, I'm a queer person. Um, and as understanding has evolved with that, so has my ability to accept all the things that I am and embrace all the things I am and embrace all the things other people can be. Um, um, I do feel like in the end, as a songwriter, um, uh, there's serving... Anytime I've tried to understand myself in songs has been less successful than when I've tried to understand someone else in a song. Um, I'm not sure quite why that is. But I do think that the bigger reach to find how I am like other people has been helpful to me um, in ways that I didn't understand when I was younger and trying to figure myself out. Now I see us all as much more much more alike than different. Yeah, it's interesting in thinking about like going back all the way back to the farm and your song City Kids where there's like such a divide between the farm kids and the city kids. Uh -huh. But then in that song, is there any kind of resolution as to how you find out that you're alike? Yeah, when people laugh when they hear the song. It's not in the writing, it's in the execution. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's very clever. It's yeah. in how it lands on an audience that everyone laughs and that everyone owns whoever they were at that time. Yeah. Uh, I have a new song which will be on the next thing. And it's called Only Later Did We Learn. And it speaks to how we did not know how, uh, how our classmates, our friends, when we were younger, when we were little, when we were in elementary school, middle school, high school, we didn't know um, how people's home lives were and what was actually happening with them. Hmm. Uh, and that as adults, we look back and realize everybody had their thing. 
everybody had their thing. Um, and maybe I'm just getting to a point in life where I'm starting to, you know, see things from, you know, two stories up or three stories up. But um, I feel lucky, in fact, to, you know, look, it's a wonderful thing to be here and alive and doing this thing here in my 50s. Um, but you do see it a little bit differently. It's a little less autobiographical and a little more we're all in this together. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I do want to go back to being a queer person. Um, I have not heard your coming out story. Would you tell it? Well, sure. Um, what I can tell you is that um, six siblings in my family and four of us are GLBT. Four. Whoa. Whoa. So I wrote a song called Herbicides Made Me Gay as part of the Hayseed Project. And this song has been really, really, really well received. Uh, the point of the song, however, is not that, you know, agrochemicals might cause you to be queer. It's more that my father's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was, I'm quite certain, linked to um, Monsanto's Roundup. I'll just say it. And I think everybody, this is well established now. Uh, we were all wondering this um, about 10 years ago, and now we pretty much know it. Um, but um, I was not the first uh, to go through the windshield in my family. Um, and this was a shock to my parents to have queer children. I think their feeling was when I began to acknowledge, again, both sides now. I think my parents felt like, well, if you have a choice, why wouldn't you make, you know, a choice to be straight? If you have a choice, why wouldn't you make a choice? And I thought, well, you know, it, it, it so is about the person. It so is about the individual that you want to build a life with and you want to spend time with. Um, and that person may be exceptional uh, in ways that, I mean, it's a constellation. For, maybe this is, I'm speaking as a woman, but for me, it's a constellation of wonderful qualities that I'm looking for in a person. Um, someone you want to have dinner with, someone you want to talk to in the morning. Um, and of course have fun in, uh, behind, behind closed doors. Um, <laughs> so right in, with this constellation, you know, it, it, this, uh, I think to let it, to let it have its room. I think to, I think that's been the biggest thing for me is to allow myself to have room and for my parents to over time understand uh, to allow their children to be themselves, all of themselves, and that parents are not uniquely responsible for their children becoming their children in good ways or bad ways. Um, right. Lots of room. And they have changed their perspective over time. I mean, four children coming out to them seems like it, they would have to. But yeah. Well, the question becomes, what's important to you? Do you need your church to be right? Do you need your neighbors and family to approve? Or do you want to hold on to the human connections that are meaningful to you? Mm -hmm. And over time, I think the human connections that are meaningful to you become your religion. And they are the most meaningful family. That's what I've seen. I want to talk about a couple of your previous albums before we talk about um, NOLA. 
your album, The Gospel Truth from 2007, is addressing themes of religion and faith, as well as religion from an agnostic's point of view. And you said, I wanted to put songs of faith next to songs of doubt, which was my experience in church. How did making that album and presenting it to those who don't share your views or and also presenting it to those who do share your views um, change your perspective on faith and people? Let me tell you one story about this this project. So I think as I began to really reckon with uh, myself as a queer person and uh, the the fact that our country would use queerness as a weapon, political weapon. Uh, as some people will remember the 2004 election, the whole Defense of Marriage Act, These, this, there was a great nastiness in this country around 2003, 2004, that election and using queer people as a wedge of sorts. And that was hard to see churches using that as a weapon. And I started to work through my attachment to the church that raised me and my gratitude to the church that raised me. And as I said earlier, where I learned how to play guitar, right? I mean, the nuns mm-hmm. were politically aware people who were going to Nicaragua and El Salvador. They saw the suffering there. They took action uh, to lessen that suffering. And they also played guitars and were warm and funny people. Uh, but also the Catholic Church was condemning queer people. And to try to put all this together... I started writing these songs of faith and doubt and questions and humor too. Um, so I wrote these songs and I brought them to my manager at the time and I said, I think I'm going to do some kind of gospel project that is not gospel. And he said, well, who's going to buy this? And I thought at that point, you know what? I think I need a new manager. <laughs> and it was a moment as an artist where you say, I need to do this whether this is going to be commercially successful or not. I Mm. need to do this. And I put this record out, and the response was so wonderful and so gratifying because I wasn't the only one who had had these questions, who has tried to put these things together. Um, I heard from people who could not get divorced because the Catholic Church would not allow them to get divorced. Um, I had conversations with people who, um, with black folks who felt like they had always been shown an image of God that was a white guy. Uh, what if God was Oprah Winfrey? Do you know? What if God looked like Oprah Winfrey? There's I, something I had never thought about. The pictures of Jesus on the wall with the beard. Is Jesus Dan Fogelberg? You know, who, what, who is Jesus? Uh, <laughs> Anyway, these, this project was so well-received in most parts of the country and also some other parts of the country, people got up and walked out. And that was challenging to my desire as an entertainer to, you know, bring people together. This was counter to my impulse to please uh, and delight people. Mm. Um, and at the same time, this needed doing. One other piece about this uh, project is I wrote a song called Did Trouble Me, um, which was very much a a song of inspired by rereading some of the New Testament while writing these songs because I wanted to appropriate some of the language into some of the songs. And this song I wrote went out into the world on this record and got picked up by Tom Jones, as in, what's new pussycat Tom Jones? (laughs) as in, it's not unusual, Tom Jones. And he sang it on a gospel album called Praise and Blame. Wow. And that cut bought me my minivan. 
And so I have come to believe in God after this entire project. And I now believe that God is Tom Jones. <laughs> Uh, I had this question later on in the interview, but I think this is a great time to talk about being in love with what you do and also about the service component to your work. And in hearing about you talk about um, the gospel truth, uh, it it is just so clear that that is your mission. And can you talk about keeping your integrity intact throughout your career, the challenges faced there? Hmm integrity oh man i i hope i hope i have integrity um i mean i hope so I've tried to try to maintain that um and tried to do things that things belong together songs belong together on a project and also to be emotionally honest with the writing and the and the and the message of things and the curiosity about things even in the travel logs the an american havana project where I went to Cuba three times and wrote songs after being in Cuba. I'm trying to be honest about all of that, not a romantic about um, Cuba being this, you know, fabulous, wonderful wonderland, but being honest about, you know, Cuba doesn't really work economically. It doesn't work. Um, And telling all sides of New Orleans as I could see them in last year's New Orleans project. Maybe I feel like a, a, a record isn't really done and doesn't have integrity um, until until I've written enough songs to get someplace I didn't know I was going to get, to get to a message that was a surprise, to get to a place I didn't know I was going to stumble upon while doing the writing. It's like an archaeologist, maybe, who keeps digging until they find something they did not expect in the dig. Um, and that's when you know you went deep enough to have something new to bring. Um, otherwise, you're just kind of a tourist, right? Hmm. Uh, you're just a visitor in every world, um, in every musical world and in every theme. But if you dig far enough that, whoa, you find that something in yourself is challenged or you yourself emotionally are at risk in this material, there's something there. If you put yourself at risk, you probably put somebody else at risk if you're really at risk. With this country project I'm working on, I think being honest about the affection I feel for how I grew up and also difficulties of how I grew up in the countryside and what that means to live apart from other people like rural people Mm do. This stuff has been the heart of it. I mean, I thought I was going to have fun with fiddles, you know, I thought it was going to (laughs) be, and it is right to have a good time musically uh, is 90% of the work really is show people a good time for 90% and 10% break their hearts and your own. And in my shows, live shows, I try to do two up-tempos to one heartbreaker. you got to earn that. To me, you really got to earn it if you're going to go there and pry up the floorboards, right? Mm-hmm. Kick somebody in the chest. Kick yourself in the chest. Well, I think that's also a pretty good way to approach life, to approach this thing that we're going through right now. Mm. Uh, social distancing and COVID-19, it's very serious and it's mm-hmm. very sad and it's very scary, but you can't live your life thinking about it all the time you'll have you'll just drive yourself crazy that's a good ratio well and and i think the 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 connection some of us are having most of us maybe are having with our friends and family on the phone uh a lot of us are looking for 
someone to point out the absurdity of it. And that's where humor comes in. A friend of mine was <clears throat> was uh, at the grocery store and uh, she was in line and someone said to her, oh, you can go ahead. And she was like, oh, great. Hey, that's really nice of you. And he said, well, you know, it's senior hours. <laughs> 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 and she doesn't she doesn't see herself as a 65 year old right she <laughs> but when someone does that oh oh right Ugh. i think the absurdity of things is a relief so uh, you're I, I think you're right on with that cindy we, we need to lighten up from time to time where we won't be able to get through this with our with our personalities intact well listen uh our next topic is completely light-hearted agriculture i have a lot of aggie fans um listening. So uh, let's talk about farming. Um, For those who don't know, can you talk about how your family ran the farm? You mentioned that things changed for them around 1975 when everything went industrial and chemical. Let me mention something that I did learn from my folks that I think is really a a takeaway lesson for all your pals who are in farming and agriculture and looking to do more of it. Um, the reason my parents didn't go broke is because they fixed everything. They bought nothing new. Nothing. In the days when people bought new fabulous combines and fabulous tractors with cabs and new trucks and... No. Thrift was everything. You would never take on debt if you didn't have to. And what you could fix yourself, you would fix yourself. And I think that's what's going to set aside and and enable some of our um, friends' ag operations to make it, is can you figure out how to keep it running on the lowest possible, the skinniest possible budget? Because if you can do that, you don't take on debt. Those qualities of thrift and industry, as my parents talked about them, those are the hallmarks of farmers. Farmers are not the most flamboyant people. They're really not, you know? <laughs> My dad, like, he just won't buy a new car. And I told him, I'm like, Dad, you can buy a new car now, you know. You're 86, you can have a new car. And he's like, no, I just bought new tires on that one. Like, the thrift is actually a point of pride. Hmm. That, I think that quality, you're talking, you're just talking about this unusual time here with COVID-19 and the economic challenges many of us face. I think these qualities may come back, some of these of being able to fix it yourself, of not spending too much, of the delights of things you have around the house instead of the new, the fascination with the new and the next. I see, yeah, I I like that. I hope that that is true, you know, because I've, I've been around families who will go to Costco and they'll buy three extra pairs of socks that they don't need that they give to their kids and they have all this extra food and it, kind of never made sense to me to begin with so i mean it would take it would take a pandemic perhaps <laughs> and now we Just have stop. one and now we have one yeah, yeah i have been thinking about the after effects of this and how you know it's things are never going to be the same and what the positives might be coming out of it i think we will enjoy human company again and I've been talking to various people about what music might mean on the other side of this. And the general sense I have, and I'm getting even more convinced of it, 
with each day is how much we're all going to enjoy being in a room together, in a show, at a show, and singing. So maybe you saw this news item go by, Cindy, but there was a choir in Washington where so many of the choir members who sang together not more than two weeks ago, many of them now have been diagnosed with this, with COVID. And it's because when we sing together, we throw a lot of wind. And when we throw a lot of wind, we throw a lot of everything else, right? Mm. So singing together is something we're not going to be doing for a while. But the joy of singing next to other people, the joy of laughing with someone who is right next to you. Mm-hmm. I think these delights are going to come up roaring back because they help us to feel safe, calm, connected, and all in this together. I think it's going to be a new golden age for music making. I really do. I'm I'm convinced of it. I just wish that there were toilet papers in the store. (laughs) (laughs) I did find out the deal, though. I just went to Target and I said, what is going on with the toilet paper? Because I haven't been going to stores very much. And he was like, we get restocked every night. When we open at 8 o'clock, there's 100 people in line. Yeah. They each buy one. And I said, is it the same people? He said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same people that come every day. So maybe it's just those 100 people who are kind of using more than their share, I think is what's going on. Right? Or they they just are panicked. Well, they could be panicked, but we need to go back to this thrift and industry concept. Like, maybe use a little less. And going back to your family's land, again, they own or still, they still own the land, 140 acres. And you seem very emotionally connected to your family's land. Can you talk about that connection? Yeah, it's one of those things that just like, I can't, you know, you start crying right away um, in a good way Um, that... You know, that horizon line uh, with the windmill um, two miles west and the lights of Cedar Rapids to the south at night, Um, being able to see the radio tower uh, uh, to the northwest, Um, the radio tower in town, even on a cloudy night, able to see the the, um, beacon at the airport. Um, sweep across the sky uh, to the north of the farm. I, I think just the sense of outdoors, the landscape, uh, and that uh, that is your companion. That is your friend. It is a constant, and it is benevolent. Um, a friend of mine from Texas said, you know, people may break your heart, but a landscape never will. Um, and uh, I still am at my happiest in any prairie including the Neil Smith Prairie, uh, which is a restored prairie uh, just east of Des Moines. It's fabulous, uh, the Neil Smith Prairie, for my friends from Iowa who know where that is. That is just, I think that's what the gates of heaven must look like. Uh, you walk in, and it is six feet of prairie grass on either side. Um, you mentioned in 2017 you released an EP, An American in Havana, which were written uh, after a couple of trips to Cuba, um, and a couple of things there, I'm interested in how those trips change the way that you play music. And is it a coincidence that your next project was all about New Orleans and how the two might be connected? Uh, how the two are connected. I love that question, Cindy. And, and, uh, let me answer that right away. 
ships were running back and forth between New Orleans and uh, Havana. And music ran back and forth on the ships as well. And there are grooves in New Orleans music that are syncopated very much like music from Cuba and vice versa. Uh, the use of a piano as a percussion instrument, as a rhythm instrument, as much as a harmonic and melodic instrument. Um, that stuff is fascinating to me. I, I have a degree in music history and I, you know, I thought it would be about like which Schubert piano quintet is this. Um, <laughs> that's not half as fun as this stuff is, right? Uh, and th these things belong to us. New Orleans is an American music, and um, Cuba is right. It's it's a it's a stone's throw from Miami. Um, these things feel closer to me geographically and emotionally and psychologically. So I was I was happy to do these travel logs really, and um, and to also challenge myself to learn to play the styles, uh, not just songs on the theme of, but to learn to master the or try to master the piano. Uh, the piano styles. Um, and that's a lot of time, um, for me anyway, it's a lot of time sitting around with a metronome and doing things slowly, playing the part slowly, slowly, and then slowly increasing the tempo until I can execute it. Um, if, I, if I say nothing else to the musicians out there, um, this is one thing I did learn in school that's been really helpful to me, and maybe nobody mentioned it to you yet, but I'll tell you, the metronome is your best friend. Playing along with that thing, playing whatever you're going to execute, a piano part, a guitar part, play slowly with the metronome, like 10, 20 clicks slower than what you're going to play it when you play it live. And then slowly increase that. And you'll find that you mm, take the rhythm into your body. You take the tempo into your body and your muscle memory improves. And you are able to execute it better just because you learned to do it slowly. Mm -hmm. This is the stuff like audiences don't see. But if we have, as musicians take the time, it, it really pays dividends. And one example of this is uh, I've done shows with Kev Mo. I have never seen anybody with just their thumb, able to make a thousand people nod in rhythm. Just his right hand thumb going up, <laughs> down, up, down, up, down, up, down. A thousand heads nod in unison because the rhythm <laughs> is so perfect and engaging and irresistible. Uh, so rhythm as musicians, our, our time that we put in to become good timekeepers really pays off. And you know who's really great in terms of timekeeping is the Indigo Girls. They are really great. And people are like, oh, they're, you know, it's their singing, it's their harmonies, it's their, you know, their songwriting. Is, yeah, and, and their timekeeping. The two of them playing together, their timekeeping is world class. I just admire the hell out of that. That's awesome. Nola is your latest album, a sound that emulates New Orleans piano greats. And I watched your Facebook Live you did about a year ago. Oh, thanks. Um, where you're talking about your, your, the songs on the record are um, taking after piano players like James Booker, Dr. John, and Fats Domino. Um, 
you were talking about a video that you watched of Dr. John's piano playing, mm. which is like essential New Orleans. And every time you hear it, you immediately, I mean, I immediately feel a certain way. And why do you think this type of piano playing affects people the way it does? We have associations with this kind of piano playing. We do. We th- it's a party. It's an instant party. Uh, one person party. And of course, the music was played to be part of parties, but also, you know, it was in, it was in whorehouses and all of that. Um, but it was lively. And it was music that sold a lot of booze. It's still music that sells a lot of booze. Um, and the relationship between booze and music, that's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, that's the longest relationship in show business. But, um, but somehow the fun of this music, I think people hear it and they know they're going to have a good time. They're going to relax into something that is rhythmic, really, before and after everything. Its essential quality is it is timekeeping. It's your foot tapping on the floor. Um, and that invites, I think, a lot of people in to that song. Whatever the song's going to be about, as soon as they hear that groove, we have a lot of buy-in from our fellow Americans mm. that this is going to be a good time and this is going to be three and a half minutes well spent. Does that make sense? Totally. Yes. Um, it invites people in. Oh, yeah. One thing to mention is Harry Connick Sr., I don't know if you know this story. Harry Connick Sr. was the district attorney in uh, New Orleans. And uh, there was a piano player with a bit of a substance abuse problem. And his name was James Booker. And Harry Connick Sr. said, listen, I'm not going to put you in jail if you will come and give piano lessons to my son. True story. And this is how Harry Connick Jr. learned how to play piano like that. And Harry Connick Jr., when you hear him play, not every note lands in the right spot, but every beat lands on the beat. Does that make sense? That time is more important than accuracy. Making the beat feel right is more important than every key being perfect. Wow. And that's part of what we love about New Orleans music is the piano is a drum. I knew that story because I watched the Facebook Live. <laughs> I'm sure Harry Connick Jr. tells the best version of that story, but but I love that. But I love that um, creative story. But creative criminal justice, right? We, we yeah. Uh, yeah yeah we can all learn from that. I'm interested in talking about taking on characters when you're singing all sorts of different styles of songs. You've done folk rock, Tin Pan Alley, gospel, country, chamber music, music from New Orleans, music from Cuba. There is such personality in the delivery. Um, If you could talk about that and maybe how do you draw the line between yourself and the character of the songs? Because just sitting here talking to you for an hour, I feel like I'm talking to you. But when I see you perform... It seems like there's there's an extra bit of energy that comes into that performance. Hmm. Well, thanks for thanks for your kind words. I, I do think I, I I do think in characters sometimes in songs we can do things and be things that we would not be in person. It's a little like fiction writing, right? Through your character, 
you can do things that you ordinarily would not. You can take chances romantically. You could be a criminal, even though you're not. Uh, I like murder ballads. I'm a big fan of murder ballads, in fact. Of, and I have not ever murdered anyone uh, <laughs> uh, yet. Uh, but um, but the, to, to play out these impulses, right? To play these out in the imagination. This is big fun. And I think it's part of why... I think it's part of why, like when we were talking earlier, Cindy, about matters of autobiography, I think it was the psychoanalyst Carl Jung who said, instead of reducing to autobiography, amplify to archetype. Okay, one more time if I got this right. <laughs> instead of reducing to autobiography, amplify to archetype. Meaning, if you can project, if you can project some piece of yourself out into a larger self and a more universal self, that might be mm, it just it, it it maybe invites more people in to see and to feel with you. Let's do the lightning round. Okay, lightning round. You're gonna love it. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> First song you learned on the guitar. It's a small world after all. Disney. Yeah, I was five years old. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, Batman or Superman? Batman all the way. Uh, what is your karaoke song? Um, Midnight Train to Georgia. Good one. Um, favorite radio station as a kid? KUNI, public radio from Cedar Falls, Iowa. Okay, dogs or cats? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Oh, man. Pour over blonde at Starbucks. That's okay. I know, seriously. That's yeah. That, no, that's it. <laughs> Your face looked like you had something else to say. Well, I love coffee from uh, my pals down at Old Bisbee Roasters in uh, Bisbee, Arizona. So I just want to give a shout out because that is the oh. best coffee in the United States. Old Bisbee Roasters, Bisbee, nice. Arizona. First album you bought with your own money? Foreigner. First concert? Foreigner. <laughs> uh, last book you read? Short Stories by Joy Williams. Dream Collaboration. Randy Newman. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. Morning Person or Night Owl? Night. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Trek. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Neil Smith National Prairie. And we talked about that earlier in the episode. And we did. The Prairie. The prairie. That's it. The lightning round. We've done it. Cindy, this was such a big, fun thing to do. I so appreciate you finding me and talking with me. And I hope this has been enjoyable to your listeners and encouraging for all of the, your listeners who make music um, to keep making music. Because when we make music, we make sense, right? We make sense to ourselves and maybe we make sense to others. Love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Basic Folk produced by Laura McCarthy this week, as well as our producer, Adam Corey. Give a shout out to him as well. Thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks so much for listening this week. And if you liked it, you can share, uh, share the link wherever you found this podcast. You can also go to my website, cindyhouse.net. Check out show notes and all that. 
and we will talk to you later. Okay, bye.